Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good. I am your Chief Philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your Vice Admiral Philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today our guest is Kuresh Ali Lansana, the co-founder and executive member of the Tri-City Collective, a Tulsa Arts Fellow, as well as being an author, educator, and poet. We talked to Kuresh about all the exciting programs being developed by the Tri-City Collective, like Real Talk and Focus Black Oklahoma. We talk about his process for writing and enjoying poetry, and surprisingly, we get sidetracked into various topics like textbooks, criminal justice reform, and art as a medium for introducing uncomfortable topics. They have a lot of events coming up, and we will list all of those events and dates in our episode notes. Don't forget to subscribe to Pod for Good on all the places podcasts can be found. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and now, finally, you can search for us the same way in all those different places. Pod, P-O-D, space the number four, space the word good. If you want to rate this podcast at the best possible place, you can go to rate this podcast backslash pod for good, in that case, all one word, and it will allow you to rate it on whatever platform works best for you. Apple, there's a, the two or three other ones, but in case you don't want to review us on Apple, go to that link, which we'll put in our show notes, and you can rate us there. Enjoy. Excited to have Koresh Ali Lansana on Pod for Good today. Hello, Koresh. What's happening? It's good to be here. So, for people who do not know, uh, you are a you are the uh, one of the co-founders and executive members of the Tri City Collective. That's correct. All right. Can you quickly explain what the Tri City Collective is? Well, the collective was created actually when I was still living in Chicago. Um, the three cities are Chicago, um, Tulsa, and Oklahoma City, and I was thinking initially, along with Bracken Clark, who is here in Tulsa, um, about creating sort of a, a, a route between the three cities for arts, for artists, for musicians, and for ideas. So how to get ideas and artists from Chicago to Tulsa, Tulsa to Chicago, um, and to Oklahoma City, just to expose all of these you know geog- geographies our geographic regions to different arts um different types of artists uh, provide some exposure to what's happening in oklahoma as well as bringing folks from oklahoma to chicago and vice versa so that was was at the core uh, almost every member of the collective with the exception of one's an educator so at the foundation of the collective sort of manifesto, if you will, is the idea of education, particularly youth education, but also adult as well, and engaging in conversations and ideas that aren't often discussed here in Oklahoma for sure, but also some in Chicago as well. Well, that's very interesting because I know that there's a um, sort of a cultural aspect to it, you know, right. an, an artistic standpoint to it. And I find, especially with places like Oklahoma and Chicago that have a very sort of long but complicated history when mm-hmm. it comes to racial issues, right. you know, socioeconomic issues. A lot of times, the first time those issues get talked about is via art. Right. And, you know, with, with Oklahoma, you know, we are coming up on the 100th year anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Right. And for a lot of people in Oklahoma, they didn't learn about it in schools. That's correct. I didn't. Um, I didn't either. <laughs> right. I know. I mean, I think maybe it came up once in a mm-hmm. history class in college, but I'd, I'd already learned about it from. Right. Um, from, I remember a brief mention in uh, Oklahoma history. In really? Like 
maybe 10th or 11th grade. Okay. But it was, it was obviously called the Tulsa race riot. And right. it was sort of very, pardon the pun, whitewashed the description mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. So it was, it was almost worse than hearing nothing, nothing about it was mm-hmm. the, the description that we got of it. Thinking back on like sort of your own personal motivations, like the fact that both the uh, Tulsa race riot, as it was called back then, and the Holocaust usually both only had like one paragraph mm-hmm, in right. the history textbooks I was reading. I was like, that seems weird. Right. They seem bigger than that. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we all three agree that, you know, up until maybe the, the last century, maybe a little over the last century, history was always written by the oppressor, right? Mm-hmm. Never the oppressed. So it's, it's daunting and shocking, but also not surprising, right? That it was not taught in Oklahoma history classes uh, at all and barely now. Yeah. I mean, I remember in third grade, our Oklahoma history was just, it was pretty much all the land run. Yeah. And even as a third grader, I was like, this doesn't feel right. I mean, right. Weren't, weren't people already here? Right. And didn't people cheat? Yeah. And I was like, why are we talking about why that? Why are we doing this? Yeah, I have an essay um, about that, about my first best friend in Enid, a full-blood Cherokee, is a full-blood Cherokee. And um, the day of the land run, I think in third or fourth grade, um, Zach and his cousin John uh, were mysteriously missing. And, you know, Zach and John were probably the best athletes in our class. Zach was certainly the fastest runner in our class. And at the, the day of the land run, they were not there. Um, and I just remember thinking, okay, so this is, this is, there's something to this, you know, even as a third grader. And Zach and I were best friends from kindergarten, probably up until about sixth, seventh grade. And we never watched Westerns. And I didn't, you know, fully understand that at kinder, at five, six years of age, why we didn't watch Westerns, you know, until much later. But that sort of, uh, that at least the empathy, they made my friend sad. They made my friend angry. So we didn't watch them. You know, it was years later. I was like, oh, this history is a little whack. <laughs> so yeah. I completely get it. You know? So did they just not come to school that day? You know, I don't, I would think so. I mean, that's my guess. I don't remember, you know, this was you know, decades ago, but I know they did not participate in the land run. So it's possible that they came to school for the first part of the day and then were excused. But even that is really twisted. Yeah. You know, so I just never just remember, like, where's Zach? Yeah. He's not here. I always thought it was a weird activity for kids to, like, recreate. <laughs> right. Because yeah. I'm like, I, I was like, we all know people were here. Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think probably most people didn't think about it. Yeah. You know, when I was when I was in third grade, I just thought it was a fun outdoor activity. Right. You know, I didn't I didn't think about what the implications of it were. Right. You know, and I was at an elementary school whose mascot was the Chieftains. And right. The fact that we're <laughs> recreating the the land run, you know, one day every year, you know, it's it's just not something that really dawned on me until much later. Right. Right. And you think about if we were going, if our, you know, K6 or educators who were going to be historically accurate, then how different would this day be? Mm-hmm. How different would this activity be? Right. Um, black folks in what was the 24th Cavalry, I believe. The two, the first, the two, the first two black men to graduate from West Point were charged with patrolling the Kansas Oklahoma border to keep boomers from coming mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Right. And think about that for a moment. Um, and then, of course, our Native American family friends who were already here and removed and then marched back. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. But no one's interested in those narratives. No. I mean, it, it always fascinated me, like the, the, the Native populations who were here, they didn't even want to be here. And 
it was like a it was like a double slight. It's right. like we we're forcing you to go to this place. Now you don't even get to right. stay well, there. And right. do, and don't forget the the native tribes that were already here before. Yeah. Right. The, the Trail of Tears. Right. So it's yeah, I mean, it's and I did think it's interesting because even relatively early on we talked about the Trail of Tears and how it was this horrible mm-hmm. thing and right. stuff like that and would talk about the tribes but then Somehow there was a disconnect when we got to things like the land run and right. the founding of Oklahoma and right. everything else that, you know, it just sort of an incongruity of how, how it was taught. Right. I mean, the teaching of history, especially in elementary middle school, seems really problematic because, <laughs> you're, one, when you train to actually be a historian, it's not about coming up with answers. It's about asking the right questions. That's right. And we are not, you are not trained to do that in you know, elementary school, middle school, or even high school, right. you're told what the answer should be. That's and correct. it's always a very general sort of whitewashed answer. Right. No, but the whole, the whole point is we don't know. You, you're, we're never gonna be able to fully tell the history of a time period. Right. Even if we have all of the records, because those records are still someone's viewpoint. Those right. are, you know, right. But that, that, that's as we talk about the America's injustice to its own population over its, its own history mm-hmm. and how to both love a country and understand its flaws at the same time seems to be a m- part of a much larger conversation mm-hmm. America is right. trying to have with itself. Right. Yeah. It's interesting though, right now in this time that I feel like, I mean, Oklahoma, I mean, not Oklahoma, this, the country's always been polarized, but there's a, in my opinion, a very deeper mm-hmm. and more entrenched kind of polarization that has happened in this country in the last decade, you know, um, certainly in the last five years or so. And it would be, Wonderful and amazing if all sides or these different sides could come together and at least have a decent conversation and agree Mm -hmm. to respectfully disagree. But that's not the case. You know, is that one of the goals of the Real Talk series? It is. It is. I want to, you know, all the Real Talk events are free, open to the public. Um, The topics vary again from month to month. But it's the idea that let's engage in public discourse. Let's engage in conversations about things that matter, particularly to folks. You know, I call it voices from the margins, right? Um, but particularly the folks of color to, you know, marginalized communities and have these conversations about difficult subjects that some folks don't want to discuss at all, but have to be for there to be any forward movement on these various issues, right? So I think, you know, what drives real talk and really what drives most of my work is um, a quote from Clara Looper, Oklahoma's greatest civil rights leader. And I'll paraphrase, but it's this idea that um, she said that nothing will change until white folks understand that black history is white history. We cannot separate the two. Right. And too many folks find it very easy somehow. I don't know how. I don't know how if, you, if you're really, really interested in history and truth, there's no way to separate our, our lives, our experiences, our histories from one another. I mean, mm-hmm. the only, re- only reason to do that is to alienate, is to make it, to create an other. Yeah, right. that's it. So what is to be gained from that? Just, you know, more delusions. Right. Um, and I think kind of related to that is that people, adults don't want to deal with uncomfortable topics like you're saying. And they often think that children can't handle right. those. So at a very young age, they just teach the pieces of history that are easy. Right. Right. And the important part of history is teaching the parts that are hard. That's right. Because that's, that's where you learn. You that's know, right. That's where you learn. And we assume that just because somebody, a, a kid is six or seven or eight, that there's no way to have a hard conversation right. with them. Right. 
I mean, I one of my many hats that I wear is I'm a consultant for Tulsa Public Schools, and I am auditing right now second, third, and fourth grade, and then uh, one first grade unit in world religions, which we'll talk about in a second, but <laughs> that was a doozy. But um, second, third, and fourth grade curriculums, um, I'm auditing the, the, entire, uh, the entire textbook adoption for each year for gaps in diversity and inclusion. And we just completed third grade. Um, there's a special redesign team that is working on third grade um, early civilizations, early American civilizations. And even there in this textbook, you know, Columbus is still there. Columbus has still discovered the new world. <laughs> he got along with everyone, you know, the folks, Taino just decided, oh, we'll go back to Spain with you, you know, because you seem like a good guy. You know, um, even though there's language that even suggests that that the Taino were, you know, could not, ex- were not uh, adaptable to the diseases that <laughs> that Columbus yeah. and his people brought with them. So many died, but the Spaniards were just fine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just that kind of language. And this is third grade. And it's it's really disturbing, particularly in uh, a student population where it's, you know, TPS is 37 percent Latinx. It's the largest population of any any student body or any ethnic group, uh, 37%. And they barely see themselves reflected in these textbooks. Yeah. And when mm-hmm. they do, they're very, very questionable, mm-hmm. suspect history. And it's, it's an amazing and task that this, the district actually is interested in doing this work, but there's pushback from some teachers who don't want to, you know, I'm going to teach what's in the book as mm-hmm. it is. And going back to the world religions comments, uh, there is um, in this grade one, first grade world religions book, there are chapters on Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And teachers here don't teach the Islam uh, chapter because they're ra- literally radicalizing our students. So there's, <laughs> there's an overwhelming yeah. majority of like mm. the greater percentage of teachers of first grade avoid it. Mm-hmm. And it's a very well written, very researched chapter. Um, it, it's lacking in, 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 in content that reflects women and girls, which is something that I've, I've suggested to uh, TPS to, for supplemental materials. But teachers here, by and large, are just, we're going to radicalize our first graders <clears throat> if we teach Islam. Wow. And so they don't touch it. And I know, Jesse, you have some thoughts about, the, about issues with textbooks. I do. And I'll let you talk about that in a second. But my thought is that are, are there alternative? I mean, if the textbooks themselves mm-hmm. are, are issues and they are often and, right. And are there alternates out there? I mean, I, I mean, the problem tends to be that the publishers make the textbooks usually cater to a very specific audience. Are there supplemental materials out there or is it the type of thing where TPS is going to go have to go out and create this it's supplemental? Both. It's both. So part of what I'm doing is not only providing mostly trade books, um, for recommended reading and for supplemental materials to support um, or to fill the gaps in the mm-hmm. curriculum. But I'm also developing curriculum okay. um, myself and then this redesign team that's working specifically on this third grade unit I mentioned. Um, we are actually de- redeveloping curriculum. But as you both probably know, you know textbooks uh, nationally are based on either Texas or California. Those mm-hmm. are the two states that have the, mm-hmm. the biggest say in adoption. The rest of the country follows suit. And so, you know, in Texas, they've completely revised history in the last right. 15 years and then teach those. 
And science. Don't and, forget and science. science oh, yeah. too. That's right. And <laughs> science. Um, and teach those books as fact. This is what this mm-hmm. is what you need to know. This is what you're being tested on. Right. So why would anyone take the time to think about engaging in, in any other knowledge or imparting any other knowledge that doesn't adhere to what's in the textbook? Right. Even though the textbook is foul and full of holes, deep, deep holes. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> again, like we're not going to talk about the teaching of the Civil War in this country, but <laughs> the, the Texas school boards that uh, you know approve these textbooks are not helping, I think, America deal with its own past a lot. That's correct. Right. Speaking of the past and Oklahoma's past, let's talk about the your newest project, which I, I believe is going live in February, which That's is uh, Focus Black Oklahoma. Right. You want to tell us a little sure. bit about that? So Focus Black Oklahoma will be, um, when it launches in February 2020, um, on Public Radio Tulsa. It's a partnership with Public Radio Tulsa, Tulsa Artist Fellowship, Tri-City, and Tulsa Community Foundation. When it launches in February 2020, it will be the first program on mainstream broadcast media. Uh, in 30 years on issues, focused on issues uh, uh, affecting black Oklahomans statewide. 30 years. The last time there was anything like this was on Channel 5 in Oklahoma City. And that show went off the air, I think, in 88, 89. And that's the year I moved to Chicago. So to think about that, that the entirety that I was out of the state, there's been nothing on mainstream media that that addresses issues of folks of color as a primary focus on mainstream media. I should make sure that I'm clear on that. So our team is diverse, but the issues are issues that affect black and brown folks um, in the state. News that doesn't often uh, get covered anywhere other than uh, maybe some of the online black newspapers and a couple of the print black newspapers. But by and large, this this information is overlooked um, because it's not prioritized by mainstream media. So it'll be an hour-long program. It'll air monthly initially, and we're excited about it. Um, very excited about it. I've been working on it for, uh, I mean, I met with Scott Gregory um, when he and I went to OU School uh, School of Journalism together back in the 80s, early 80s. Um, but I met with him when I first returned uh, to Oklahoma uh, in July of last year. And um, so is there, I, you know, I did a little market research. I said, Scott, is there anything like this on the air? He said, no. Would you be interested in helping make something like this happen? He said, yeah. So we went from idea or concept to pilot in 12 months and are about to complete our second pilot. And that second pilot is what will be broadcast. It will be our first launch in, uh, in February 2020. It's very exciting. I'm very excited to hear it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So you, you said um, issues that are important to the black and brown population here. Uh, so I want to talk about sort of representation and sort of minority groups against other minority groups mm-hmm. and issues that come up there because it's similar even though the groups themselves change depending on sure. where in the country you are. But so in Oklahoma, like what would those groups be? Who are, the, who, are the, who are the groups that both need help and are both sort of either on purpose or accidentally, you know, fighting against each other for the small amount of resources or attention right. they can get? Well, certainly uh, black folks, Native American, uh, our Latinx family, and then I would go into uh, the LGBTQA community. Um, I would move into our, to our Jewish brothers and sisters as well. And then I would go to the, the <laughs> our mass incarceration rate, so um, our prison industrial complex, the, the men and women and uh, folks who are in, in that. That's a whole nother, I mean, that's a whole nother nation almost, mm-hmm. right, in this state. Our young people, 
would definitely be a part of that as well. And how is that different from Chicago where you spent 30 years of your life? Well, it's interesting because I've been thinking about that as well. There's only one show on Chicago Public Radio that actually does this. That's locally produced, I should say. That's not coming out of New York or D.C. or Boston uh, or PRI on the West Coast. In Chicago, there's there's only one show like this um, that's locally produced. It's on weekly. And I've been on that show and I know the producer and the host of that show. Um, and it's an important influence for me as well. But then in Chicago Public Radio also affects, or I should say, addresses issues of folks of color and marginalized communities in other ways, like special projects and special programs. So, for example, I was the contributing producer and editor for a series called Inverse, um, which was a part of a larger series called Every Other Hour, because in Chicago, there's gun violence every other hour. And so what what we did was we sent a poet out with a beat reporter to cover shootings. And we also sent a photographer with um, the poet and the beat reporter. And then so the poet was reporting the crime scene in, in poetry. So the, the, the report, the reporter's story would air first. And then the poems, if you go to the website, then you can see the photos as well. So those were very creative ways to attempt to help folks understand the significance that somebody gets shot uh, and or killed in, in the city every, literally every other hour. Thinking about ways to help this city, to move this city toward engaging conversations and knowledge that dispel this odd, you know, and well, it's not odd. A clearly very racist perception that North Tulsa is, you know, just not someplace you want to be when it is statistically the, 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 has the least violent, is the least violent neighborhood in the city. It's a part of the work, you know, Tulsa is not Chicago in terms of certainly population, in terms of diversity and those diverse populations feeling engaged. But Tulsa is very similar to Chicago in the sense that some of the folks who feel the most marginalized, who are the most out of the out of the conversation, but are the conversation, are the topic of the conversation, still feel like no one is there for them, that no one is paying attention to their lives other than seeing crime on you know the ten o'clock news. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is important to me and is important to Focus Black Oklahoma, right, is that the stories are about everything from, you know, a youth voice to to a spiritual spotlight where houses of worship of various faiths and denominations are doing social justice work, good work in the community. And then stories like Demaria Monday's story, who uh, is a formerly incarcerated woman who, when she was uh, released, she began working with Representative Regina Goodwin to and ended up helping to formulate House Bill 3393, which was um, to remove shackles from pregnant women who were incarcerated giving childbirth in prison, which is just, you know. The fact that that had to be done. <laughs> yeah. You had to have that removed. The, yeah. I mean, and that was last year. Yeah. yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. up until last year, pregnant women in prison were shackled to their birth beds. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's just. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's horrible and surprising, yet not surprising when you yeah. learn about how how many women are incarcerated in the state. Right, mm-hmm. we're still we're still number one in that, right? We yes, we are. We're actually women number, and men. number on uh, women. We're number one in the world. That's correct. That's correct. Men, I think we we go back and forth with Louisiana yeah. on whether we're number one or they're number one. Yeah, that's right. It's like it's like the Peach Bowl. 
So like it's, it's yeah. It so it's a uh, uh, it's per capita, right? Yes, yeah. it's per capita. Per capita. Yeah. Yes. Because I'm like I feel like there are some countries that incarcerate more women than us in total. But, in total, right. and, yes. but not per but capita. But not at the rate that we. Yeah. Right. So yeah, we're still right. we're still number, number one, one there. Yeah. Yeah. You actually yeah. gave an, an example of a story that my next question was going to be. I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything from the first Focus Black Oklahoma, but what is a story that someone maybe wouldn't think is a story that you're trying to feature? Like what, okay. what is it that say the white population of Tulsa wouldn't think they're missing from the news okay. that you're going to say? On, you're gonna so tell. for the, in the first pilot, which, you know, won't air, it's the second pilot. That'll be the first broadcast. It's like the game. But, it's like the original game of Thrones pilot, <laughs> <laughs> which I've not seen in the first pilot. The lead story in the news rundown is that nationally black women are 37% more likely to die during childbirth than white women. Which is just staggering. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And you don't hear that in the main, on the, anything mainstream. You didn't even see that. You read that in the newspaper. Yeah. But it's, it, to me, that, that really resonates in terms of the kind of work that, that we're trying to do and the kind of work that's important to me. That it is journalism. It is, it is, it is real journalism about, but it's not all of our, you know, of the, the negative aspects of the black experience, which is what often is on um, mainstream media. Uh, another example would be that for the pilot that will air in February, we have a long interview with Malcolm Scott and DeMarco Carpenter, two men who were wrongly convicted and served 22 years, right, for crimes they did not commit. And that Malcolm is an inspiration to me because he's so full of life, such a positive man um, and doing really fine work in the community in Tulsa when he comes back home and in Houston as well with young people and adults as well. He didn't have to be. <laughs> he was falsely incarcerated for 22 years, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't have to be the positive person and the helpful person that he has chosen to be, right, after that experience. And so for me, the Malcolm's story, Malcolm's experience is, is, is literally and figuratively, right, sort of a, the journey of, of black folks, I think, in many ways, and other marginalized folks, too. How do you choose to deal with this adversity, and how do you, how do you move past it in ways that are productive, not only for oneself, but for the community as well? He could be bitter, and everyone would understand why he'd be yeah. bitter. So that's another story that is important to me and important to um, what we're trying to do with the show. So you mentioned earlier that with history, that it's important for white people to understand that black history is part of their history. Right. Is it the same way with these stories and these issues that you're highlighting? Yeah, it is. I mean, the story, I mean, the show is, again, the content's about black and brown folks, but we don't want just the listeners to be black and brown. We want everyone to listen to this show because it's news that folks aren't getting anywhere, regardless of your ethnicity or sexual orientation, right? So we, again, so because as we started with this conversation talking about education and educational textbooks, Mm -hmm. that the narrative is so often driven by who's in charge or who's in power, that with Focus Black Oklahoma and with really all of our Tri-City Collective programming, we're attempting to not attempting. We are saying or putting forth the notion that we can control our narrative and we can put this narrative out there and that everyone benefits from this knowledge. Even if you don't think you do, mm-hmm. you at least learn something. And that's really a, a part of the goal of all of our work. Well, and I think uh, in talking about some of the criminal justice topics that we've talked about mm-hmm. that, that you're highlighting, 
it seems like it's been uh, an interesting journey for Oklahoma over the last few years mm-hmm. because any time that something has come up to the vote of the people, they've proven that they feel very strongly f- towards uh, criminal justice reform. Right. Everything is overwhelmingly passed, and then the state government tries to do whatever it can to undercut it. So it seems like the people of Oklahoma are moving a lot faster towards these topics than the government is. And it seems like I, I don't I don't know how to deal with it because it seems like people see that when they're voting for something, but then they continue to vote for the same people in office. Right. And I think that's, you know, you could apply what you just said, Chris, nationally as well. Yeah. Right. And we know that it's all connected to the NRA and um, and, and the politicians that are in the NRA's pocket. Um, and so very little will change. I mean, just again, I've been back in Oklahoma a year and a half. And what it was it last summer that um, the state passed the bill that you as long as you're 18 you don't have to be registered to own a firearm mm-hmm. you just go yep. buy one yeah and then yeah. you just carry it yep. yep i mean that's that's some wild wild west business you know yep. what i mean i mean <laughs> it's white herb it's yeah. insanely dangerous i don't understand people's desire to have these things right because guns like mm-hmm. i've never met someone who like who's on the opposite side of me when it comes to guns who also want to admit that guns are dangerous right and so if they are dangerous, other things in our lives mm-hmm. that are dangerous are also regulated or controlled in some way. Right. Well, and the topic that a lot of people don't want to talk about related to that is the way that people of color experience that law different from white. Yes, people. correct. Because a white person that is carrying that, interacting with, you know, authority, police mm-hmm. is right. going to have a very different experience. That's correct. And, you know, I know that a lot of people, because of that, feel less safe because of this. Right. Right. Why add more tension to an already tense situation? <laughs> it's true, right? And thinking about, you know, how certainly over the last several years, but it's been going on for a century, if not more, you know, thinking about, you know, Philando Castile, what happened, you know, mm-hmm. I, I I have a card, I'm a card carrying, you know, mm-hmm. I'm registered to carry this gun, reach for the card, shot dead, right? right? So you're absolutely correct. It's a very different experience. And then coming from uh, the South Side of Chicago, where I've been for the last 28 years, thinking about how like the day after, this was a few years ago, but it was literally the day after a handgun ban was lifted. There were 54 shootings or something in a weekend. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, oh, and those two things are connected somehow. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, just like when the Voting Rights Act didn't get renewed right. and instantaneously multiple states sort of changed a lots of voting laws and right. how many voting places were going to be open. Right. And it was almost like, it's one of those things where when you see it happen, you're like, okay, why didn't some of us expected this to happen? Mm-hmm. Why did the people in charge either not expect it to happen or not care that or it was going to happen? Right. Because okay. it affected, how did it affect their districts? Yeah. Right. No, it's true. <laughs> and that's where I wonder like you were talking about earlier about sometimes art is the first way these topics get to people. You know, I'll be fascinated to see over the next couple of years the impact of a show like Watchmen, who mm-hmm. literally opened the entire series of what's become a very popular series with a depiction of the race massacre. And yeah. it could have gone deeper and it could have could have spent more time on it, but it still was a very visceral experience watching yeah. that. So those types of things that that kind of force people to confront that. I'm curious how art can continue to do that for some of these topics. Right. No, I agree. Break through the empathy. I mean, sorry. Yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. So let me ask you to this. Did you two read in the most recent Tulsa voice 
uh, Barry Friedman's uh, The Bad Penny Awards. I have not, but since he is a family member of mine, I, I got to run down. I gotta. <laughs> so did so? Did you hear about the first, the very first entry in his Bad? Penny I did not. Awards? So the very first entry is he is criticizing a play um, that Theater One, I believe, Theater Twenty One um, produces. It is a, a play about Black Wall Street, and the play does not mention the massacre. The play is about the evolution and the and the heyday, the economic and independent um, boom of mm-hmm. Black Wall Street. But it doesn't include the massacre. And Barry beats the play up, <laughs> criticizes it because it doesn't include the massacre, and then has a, a really interesting sort of comparison to you know, uh, to the Holocaust. Like it's sort of like having telling a story about the history of. of of modern Judaism and not and omitting the Holocaust. And I wouldn't sure I wouldn't try to I I'm still processing that, mm-hmm. right? Um it's interesting to see what you think what you two think about it. Uh but the fact that Black Wall Street existed for as long as it did in the midst of in the face of the worst Jim Crow in the in the country is to be celebrated. Yes. It deserves to be celebrated. Yes. Right. Um the, the odd history there between the World War One soldiers and folks coming with the uh, with the five tribes. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't like that term that five civilized tribe yeah. terms, but the five tribes, yeah. the land grants, and then this place was thriving before Harlem. Right? Why is it not okay to just celebrate that? And then you can we can talk about the massacre in another place. It, it's so what's funny is like I used to do Holocaust education, and what I tried to tell people is that. And I try to tell this to other Jews, which is that the Holocaust is not the only thing that has ever happened to Jews. Right. We should not we should not entirely focus mm-hmm. all of our energy and time on the worst thing that has happened to us. That that hurts us. And I think in that argument sort of goes with the, the, the race massacre, which is like we should be celebrating what was there, but also talking about why it's no longer there, but also celebrating the amazing thing it was. And it's hard well, to do that because And also talking about what came after. Yeah. I mean a lot of people think that you know, there was a full stop. Black Wall Street ended at the race massacre, and that's the end of the story. The fact is, they fought harder after that to bring it back. Yeah. And then the highways came in and yeah. destroyed it anyways. But the fact is that, that like, that's, that's as, as big and important a story is the way that they battled their city government, the way that, that, that they created their own legal teams to fight against everything from... It's not exciting, but zoning ordinances so that they could rebuild. Yeah, and they correct. did. They rebuild a a new thriving Black Wall Street right. after it. After. That's be, correct. But because the focus does tend to be on the race massacre, frankly, because it was ignored for so long is right. probably that's part true. of it. And that's true. That's, and that's valid. But the whole story was ignored, too. That's correct. That's so, yeah. Correct. So w- when you only have so much time to tell the oppressors your own history what do you focus on right and how do you how do you get their attention that's right. always something i've i've noticed in like why the if the race massacre is mentioned in a textbook or the holocaust is mentioned in a textbook it gets a paragraph cuz they think that is the most someone who has never run into this can handle at a time <laughs> and i feel right. like i feel right. like that that's an injustice both ways agreed mm-hmm. agreed cuz it's going to perpetuate a great deal of ignorance Right. Yes. And a lack of empathy, yeah, um, and a lack of understanding, and so circling back, right? I believe that art is maybe the best way, other than direct, you know, sort of conversation, right? right? That art is the best way to teach history, to teach empathy, to teach respect, um, because 
can look at a painting and bring my own self and my own stuff to that piece of art. And the artist was attempting to communicate something as well. And so it's a great opportunity for uh, for us to learn about other cultures, to learn about difference um, and to find empathy. And so that's very much a part of what we do as well. Yeah, that sort of reminds me of, so the Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Israel has this interesting thing that when you first walk in, they had this artist, she combined all the video footage that existed about European Jewry before the Holocaust and sort of weaves it together in this sort of side scroll that just keeps moving, right? Okay. And the whole point is, as you go through the museum, you know, which you sort of crisscross the museum, one, it goes down, right? And two, it gets farther away from that video. So by the time you're done walking through the museum, you can barely see it. Mm-hmm. And it's, this, mm. it's a visual representation yeah. of the fact that, that no longer exists. Right. And it also moves down, leading towards the discussion about the concentration camps and starts moving back up as it talks about, you know, the post-Holocaust. But still, mm-hmm. by the time you're at the highest point again, you can't, you can barely see it. You can see that there's, there's a triangle, it's in a triangle shape, but you can barely see it. And I, that was almost just as effective as the rest of the museum I, was. I could see that. And yeah. it's, I could see that. Like visual art, especially, I right. think, can really affect people. But so can the written word, which leads us to our, to my next question about, so you are a poet. When I have time, yeah. <laughs> I, fi- I find poetry to be the, the most interesting and the hardest for me to engage in because there's the way poetry is taught to, <laughs> to, to people is also sort of like history not done really in the best way. Where Rhyming well, couplets and, and things like that. Yes. That's poetry. Right. Which I've never, I've never viewed as the definition of poetry because when Judaism is built on an oral tradition where there's a reason why the, you know, the Torah repeats itself a lot because it was originally being told oh, as a story, story. and like, you know, there's a rhythm to that. And so I was, I was wondering, like, what are your takes on how you like to write poetry? And especially when you're writing about poetry that are about serious topics, how do you, how do you make something that is very complicated? Not more simple. Accessible. Yeah, more accessible. Okay, well, I'll, I'll try and tackle that in a couple of different ways. <laughs> so one, um, you're right that most teachers are afraid of poetry. We call it, in, in one of the... The book of pedagogy that I, I co-authored, we have a chapter called Demystifying the Poem, right? And that there's this idea that that folks are afraid of getting it wrong. And there's poetry is about meaning acquisition and about emotional experience, right? If you think about it that way first, how does it make you think or feel? And then what do you think is happening in this part or this part or this part? Um, it makes it personal, which is really the point of all art, right, is to make have a personal connection. And then we can teach simile and metaphor in the wake of all of that. But that's not what's primary. And so, you know, you don't have to have a – there's no intelligence meter. to. It's just about taking the time to read a poem at least five times because there's good levels and layers of meanings that are going to be unpacked for each reading. No one can get understand what's happening in a poem in one reading. No one. Maybe I don't even know if Einstein could, right? Because there's just so there's levels and depths of meaning, right? Um, so yeah, we have a lot of work to do in terms of helping teachers feel more comfortable in teaching it, so folks don't get aren't just you know completely ruined on the idea of a poem by the time they get to college, right, or high school. But in terms of my process, I I've always been. I mean, I'm the youngest of six. I grew up in a house in Enid that was full of music, you know, full of 60s and 70s, black arts movement, soul and funk. And I have always been in love with with words because, you know, I could I could sing a Stevie Wonder song before I knew how to spell the words that I was singing. And so 
I think for me, A, because I grew up in music, I was raised in the church, so uh, in the church AME, so I was always in front of an audience during holiday seasons uh, reciting something, that the relationship with, um, with words and sounds something that I was always sort of interested in. Uh, I remember in third grade, my best friend Zach, as I referenced earlier, and I um, used to have uh, conversations that about the etymology of words. Of course, we didn't know what etymology was at that time. <laughs> but it's like, why is that called a couch? And why is that called a chair? You know, and what's, what makes, who makes these decisions, right? What's the history of these words? And we were having these conversations at eight, nine years of age. And I was always sort of struck by that and also by Sesame Street. I wanted to live on Sesame Street. We'll talk <laughs> about that later too. But that... Letters are symbols for sounds like musical notes are symbols for sounds. So letters are symbols for sounds. You put letters together in a particular way, they, they make sound and they make sense. You put words together, letters that make words together in a particular way, they make sound and they sense, and then they can also make a kind of music. So, and I think, again, because of, of the music that was very much a part of my growing up, that and my love of language and my love of reading born from first that music. Um, as well as from, you know, Oscar the Grouch. I, and because my, my older siblings were all were very much involved as much in, as one could be in Enid, Oklahoma, the black arts movement, I learned those, that, the convergence, the politics, the cultural politics, and the importance of language and communication in, or with regard to those cultural politics uh, very early on, before again, before I had an understanding of what was happening to me. So I've always been a political poet. I mean, there was a brief moment probably when I first started. No, that's not true either. I first started writing poetry seriously at 19 years of age as I was a, I was a sophomore at OU, a journalism student. And I started writing poetry so I could scream on a piece of paper the things that I could not scream in the writing I was doing for school and being very political at that time as well. And then for, for a brief moment, probably for, yeah, definitely because of some young woman, you know, I was writing very bad rhymed love poems <laughs> or unrequited love poems as the case may be. But the politics was always there. And so I believe that you know, the personal is political and the political is personal. Um, and so being a student of history and being trained as a journalist, the, the notion of the story is first or the narrative is first, or the content is first and the I is second. I published for 10 years before I ever used the pronoun I, and that comes from the journalism training. It also comes from the fact that I feel like that I am secondary to whatever the content or topic or narrative is. And the, in so doing or in so being, the politics uh, that in which I grew up, um, and how I evolved again, Jim Crow, Enid, apart, I call it apartheid Enid, actually, informed how I write very naturally, right? That I don't set out necessarily that I'm going to, uh, I don't always set out and thinking I'm going to write a poem about this thing or this thing. There are things that trigger me and ideas that come to me from either reading or, you know, I'm a news junkie, so something that I hear or see um, or read. Um, but the, but the, the, the confluence of being a student of history, therefore I write most of my work based on a notion of how does this moment, whether it's personal or, uh, or external, how does this moment connect with the past and how does it inform the present? And they all converge within the poem, and I'm attempting to 
navigate all of those, the past, the present, and the future, based on whatever is happening in the moment that is the, you know, the driving force of the poem from a contextual standpoint, if that makes any sense. No, I mean, it does. Like, again, the, I've always been obsessed with the creators of art and how, what their process is like, mm-hmm. because I'm a very sporadic talker, as you can tell, and I'm also a very sporadic writer. My, write, my writing's all over the place and requires a lot of work by me and my English teacher father to fix <laughs> because I'm, assu- I'm making assumptions about the reader and what the reader is going right. to understand versus what I want them to understand. Um, but you mentioned, you know, a lot of times you don't know until something triggers you that you're going to be writing the poem about this thing. Right. You did tell me about a project where you are told about what you're going to be writing about. And that's the, your project with the circle cinema. Are you, can, right. can we talk about that publicly? Sure. We can talk okay. about that publicly. So with circle cinema, um, the collective has created a relationship or partnership. Um, and we've yet to give it a title. So thank you for the title. Uh, kudos a minute ago. So if you have a suggestion for me for this one, I'm struggling, but <laughs> so we're going to, to engage poets in writing about the films that will be released starting in January, actually starting January 10th. Um, and they will either, um, read before the special screenings, they'll open before the screening. And then there'll be, there's also going to be a lobby series where poets will read poems about the film after the film is screened. Um, and then we're developing a, a component with TPS where young people will come and screen certain films, primarily documentaries where they're, mm-hmm. they're engaging in some knowledge, developing some curriculum surrounding those films. And then the students will come back and read in the lobby series. So I'm very excited about it. I like the circle cinema folks. Carrie Wings is great. Our father Clark's great. And we're very excited about this. So the first film actually is 1917, which is January 10th. And so, you know, there's such already pre-existing World War One poems from vets. It was still okay back then for men to be sensitive. Yeah. So I'm um, very excited about, you know, finding, I'll, I will select a group of folks who will then select the poems they want to read. And then um, one poet will open and then there'll be a reading in the lobby of other World War One poems um, from, uh, or that film. And then we will go on through Flash Gordon and in May and the French Film Festival will be engaging, doing this all all year. I feel like World War One's actually a good place to start because, yeah, you know, agree. one, as a, as a nerd and a historian, World War One's always been an obsession of mine. One, because mm-hmm. uh, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan and a lot, right. of, a lot of the ideas of that story come out of World War One and then the lead up to World War Two, And also because it led to a lot of art about sort of the pointlessness of the war in the first place. Mm-hmm. And World War Two is great for content because, you know, there was a, there was a good side and there was a bad side. World War One was just sort of complicated and stupid and so a lot of the art that came out of it was very like why did we do this why are we all suffering now that's right so so this um this program so it'll be a mix of reading existing poetry and then developing some poetry that ties into the specific movies as well yeah more more often than not there'll be poets writing poems original poems about the films um there are on a couple occasions where primarily the documentaries, but some of the, the biopics where there are actually poems that exist already. Okay. I see. So you're, I see you're a biopics person. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you said you were having problems coming up with a title for this. Yeah. You have yeah. some ideas. I mean, they're probably terrible ideas, but I had the first one that popped in my head was spoken word on film. Ooh, I had, um, poetry in motion. That's so, nice. Both that's of good. those are nice. I was trying to do like motion pictures, but change the word pictures to not poems, but, 
with the same similar ending, but I can't do it. So uh, <laughs> if, if our listeners have any ideas, they're, they're <laughs> there welcome to email us or tweet <laughs> us or send us Facebook messages. That will work. <laughs> Again, thank you so much for coming to talk with us. You've already mentioned so many things that are upcoming, but the, the first Poetry in Motion, as we're going to call it now, yeah. uh, <laughs> we'll program your idea. Yeah, is on January 10th. Yes. And the Focus Black Oklahoma is going to be launching sometime in February. Sometime in February. I do not know. We do not know the date yet, but we'll know it by mid-January. Are you thinking more like a weekend thing? Probably Friday evenings and then rebroadcast um, on a noon slot. Uh, on another day of the week that's yet to be determined. But right now, I'm being told probably Friday evenings. All right. And then after they air, will they also be available online? They will. Stream, They'll be archived on the Public okay. Radio Tulsa yes. uh, website. Excellent. Yeah. For, if our listeners are able to find this podcast, they'll be able to find that recording somewhere, <laughs> too. So most NPR stations you know, have their own podcast channels, so, which that's is good. Mm-hmm. Is there, is, before we go, is there anything else you would like to make sure our listeners know about that's upcoming? Either either personal, professional. I am. I, we'll see. Let's see. There are many things. One, I'm reading. I have two readings on January 23rd. One with my publisher, the Calliope Group. And it's a pop-up reading, a pop-up book selling at Mother Road Market at 6 p.m. on the 23rd. And then I will leave that reading and go to uh, a reading series called Seven Minutes in Heaven that a good friend and fellow, Tulsa artist fellow, Liz Blood, runs. And I don't know where that's going to be yet, but that'll be around 7. And that same evening is the members-only opening for the exhibition that Tri-City Collective guests curated at the Gilcrease. But we did um, the public openings on the 25th, and it's a collection called Memories and Inspirations. And um, some private collectors um, out of Atlanta have, have, uh, have allowed 62 pieces of significant African-American art from the 20th and 21st centuries to um, be exhibited at Gilcrease. Gilcrease will be the first museum that exhibits this this art outside of Atlanta where the collectors are. So we're very excited about that. And that exhibition will be uh, up until July. So I encourage everyone to go check it out. There'll be a lot of great deal of programming associated with uh, that exhibition as well. There's two real talk series programs coming up too, right? There are. Thank you for that. So <laughs> um, January 18th, um, the real talk event, which will be at Woody Guthrie Center from 2 to 4 p.m. is called Black and Blue, the Police and the Community. Um, and that will be an interesting conversation based on a couple of things. One, that Chief Jordan has retired. Two, that there's a great deal of concern about how his successor is um, selected and that the community wants to be involved and should be involved in that process. Um, and then three, the idea that community policing, community policing is no longer really employed mm-hmm. in this city. Um, we have, I think, one officer doing it, yeah, right? I think so. Yes. So that's January 18th. And then um, February 4th, uh, we're very excited about doing a special collaboration with the Charles Susterman uh, Jewish uh, Community Center, seventy first, and um, that is uh, called um, the Comradeship of Excluded Peoples, Blacks, Jews, and Civil Rights in Tulsa and Beyond. Um, and Rabbi Fitzerman has committed to that, um, and, and many Hannibal Johnson. So, and we confirming a few other folks, but we're very excited about this. I mean, you could, you two can tell me, has there been, in your knowledge, in your lifetimes, and your time in Tulsa, any sort of community conversation like this that has occurred? I can't Not formally, no. I mean, like, I've had conversations like this with people, but it's just in, in the work that I was doing, never, never mm-hmm. public-facing and never 
never specifically designed to try to get the people in the room who aren't there, other than maybe the OCCJ Trialogue series, which, again, had, had its own problems with, you know, preaching to the choir. Right. But I think these Real Talk series, I'm very excited of seeing both of them. And, you know, uh, we are working on a partnership where um, Rent 9 Productions will be recording these Real Talk absolutely. series to release as a podcast. That's very exciting. Absolutely. So, How can news. people follow real talk to find out when when things are happening what topics are coming up things like that tricitycollective.com uh, is our website we also have a facebook page which is much more active we also have an instagram page where we also promote promote our events so but tricitycollective.com and then the the facebook page is probably the the most up to date does, does, is the is there a Facebook page just for the Real Talk series, or is it for the Tri City? It's for Tri City okay. Collective, and we promote all of our events and all of our programming okay. on that. And we'll be we'll be uh, you know sharing those too, since mm-hmm. you know, we will. Yes, and well. so they'll be able to find out about some of the other programs we talked about as well. By that's correct. Yes, by going to the website and the and the Facebook. Because I mean, Chris and I tried to make mental notes so we could remember all those dates for mm-hmm. our intro. But we are going to forget at least two. So yes. <laughs> I'll send you the list. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. So the very last thing we do in every episode is we have our guest or guests sort of look around the uh, Rant 9 nerd cave that is our recording studio and either find something that calls to them that they love and like th- that they also are a part of that weird niche collective of people who like that thing or something that just sort of fascinates or confuses them that they want to know what it is. Um, well, I think I have to go with the Star Trek ships. All right. Yeah. All right. Well. We will we will take a picture of you with one of them for uh-huh. uh, our our Facebook fans, and uh, you know we always find it's nice to have a personal touch when we're talking about all these serious topics right. to have a little fun because Chris and I are both only quasi serious people. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah uh, that's good. Listen, I mean, again, as you know, not every like while there are terrible things in the world, it doesn't mean your entire life has to be terrible. That's right, and mm-hmm. you know. Uh, like there's a reason gallows humor exists. That's right. And you know, sometimes laughing about a terrible thing is the really only way to deal with it and move mm-hmm. on and keep fighting. So sometimes that's where the best art comes from. That's, that's also yes, <laughs> that's very real. Very true. Well, again, thank you so much yes, for joining us much. today. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. Absolutely. I hope you all enjoyed our conversation with Koresh Ali Lansana. We will attempt to put all the dates for all the upcoming events in our show notes, but please make sure to follow them on Facebook. And one more time, because you're going to get this message at both the beginning and end of every episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast anywhere podcasts can be found under pod for good That's with the number four, all three words. And if you want to give this podcast a five-star rating, you can go to ratethispodcast.com slash pod for good All one word. Get done, Tulsa. Tulsa.